Chapter Thirteen of the Hidden Places. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Hidden Places by Bertrand W. Sinclair. Chapter Thirteen. From day to day and from week to week, apprehending mistily that he was caught in and carried along by a current, a slow but irresistible movement of events. Hollister pursued the round of his daily life as if nothing but a clear and shining road lay before him, as if he had done forever, with illusions and uncertainties, and wild steerings of the spirit, as if life spread before him like a sea of which he had a chart, whereof every reef was marked, every shoal buoyed, and in his hands and brain the instruments and knowledge wherewith to run a true course." He made himself believe that he was reasonably safe from the perils of those uneasy waters. Sometimes he was a little in doubt, not so sure of untroubled passage. But mostly he did not think of these potential dangers. He was vitally concerned, as most men are, with making a living. The idea of poverty chafed him. He had once been a considerable toad in a sizable puddle. He had inherited a competence and lost it, and power to reclaim it was beyond him. He wasted no regrets upon the loss of that material security, although he sometimes wondered how Myra had contrived to let such a sum slip through her fingers in a little over two years. He assumed that she had done so. Otherwise, she would not be sitting on the bank of the Toba waiting more or less passively for her husband to step into a dead man's shoes. That was, in effect, Bland's situation. He was an Englishman of good family, accustomed to a definite social standing, accustomed to money derived from a source into which he never troubled to inquire. He had never worked. He never would work, not in the sense of performing any labor as a means of livelihood, he had a small income, fifty or sixty dollars a month. When he was thirty, he would come into certain property and an income of so many thousand pounds a year. He and his wife could not subsist in any town on the quarterly dole he received. That was why they had come to live in that cabin on the Toba River. Bland hunted. He fished. To him, the Toba Valley served well enough as a place to rusticate. Any place where game animals and sporting fish abounded satisfied him temperamentally. He had done his bit in the war. When he came into his money, they would go home. He was placidly sure of himself, of his place in the general scheme of things. He was suffering from temporary embarrassment, that was all. It was a bit rough on Myra, but it would be all right by and by. So much filtered into Hollister's ears and understanding before long. Archie Lawan came back downstream with two grizzly pelts, and Hollister met Bland for the first time. He appraised Bland with some care, this tall, ruddy Englishman who had supplanted him in a woman's affections, and who— unless Hollister's observation had tricked him, was in a fair way to be himself supplanted. For Hollister was the unwilling spectator of a drama to which he could not shut his eyes. 
nor could he sit back in the role of cynical audience, awaiting in cushioned ease the climax of the play and the final exit of the actors. Mills was the man. Whether he was more than a potential lover, whether Myra, in her ennui, her hunger for a new sensation, whatever unsatisfied longings had led her to exercise upon men the power of her undeniable attraction, had now given her heart into Charlie Mills's keeping, Hollister, of course, neither knew nor cared. But he did know that they met now and then, that Mills seemed to have some curious knowledge of when Bland was far afield. Mills could be trusted to appear on the flat in the evening or on a Sunday, if Myra came to see Doris. He speculated idly upon this sometimes. Myra he knew well enough, or thought he did. He began to regard Mills with a livelier interest, to talk to the man, to draw him out, to discover the essential man under the outward seeming. He was not slow to discover that Mills was something more than so much bone and sinew which could be applied vigorously to an axe or a saw. Hollister's speculations took a new turn when Archie Lawan and Bland came back from the bear hunt. For Lawan did not go out. He pitched a tent on the flat below Hollister's and kept one siwash to cook for him. He made that halt to rest up, to stretch and dry his bearskins. But long after these trophies were cured, he still remained. He was given to roaming up and down the valley. He extended his acquaintance to the settlement farther down, taking observation of an earnest attempt at cooperative industry. He made himself at home equally with the Blands and the Hollisters. And when July was on them, with hot, hazy sunshine, in which berries ripened and bird and insect life filled the toba with a twitter and a drone, when the smoke of distant forest fires drifted like pungent fog across the hills, Hollister began to wonder if the net Myra seemed unconsciously to spread for men's feet had snared another victim. This troubled him a little. He liked Lawan. He knew nothing about him, who he was, where he came from, what he did. Nevertheless, there had arisen between them a curious fellowship. There seemed to reside in the man a natural quality of uprightness, a moral stoutness of soul that lifted him above petty judgments. One did not like or dislike Lawan for what he did or said, so much as for what he suggested as being inherent within himself. There was a little of that quality also about Charlie Mills. He worked in the timber with a fierce energy. His dark face glistened with sweatbands from morning till night. His black hair stood in wisps and curls, its picturesque disorder heightened by a trick he had of running his fingers through it when he paused for a minute to take breath, to look steadfastly across at the slide-scarred granite face of the North Valley Wall with a wistful look in his eyes. "'Those hills,' he said once abruptly to Hollister, "'they were here long before we came. They'll be here long after we're gone.' What a helpless, crawling, puny insect man is, anyway. A squirrel on his wheel in a cage. 
It was a protesting acceptance of a stark philosophy, Hollister thought, a cry against some weight that bore him down, the momentary revealing of some conflict in which Mills foresaw defeat, or had already suffered defeat. It was a statement wrung out of him, requiring no comment, for he at once resumed the steady pull on the six-foot cross-cut saw. "'Why don't you take it easier?' Hollister said to him. "'You work as if the devil was driving you.' Mills smiled. "'The only devil that drives me,' he said, "'is the devil inside me. "'Besides,' he continued, between strokes of the saw, "'I want to make a stake and get to hell out of here.' Hollister did not press him for reasons. Mills did work as if the devil drove him, and in his quiescent moments an air of melancholy clouded his dark face, as if physical passivity left him a prey to some inescapable inner gloom. All about him, then, Hollister perceived strong undercurrents of life flowing sometimes in the open, sometimes underground. Charlie Mills and Myra Bland touched by that universal passion which has brought happiness and pain, dizzy heights of ecstasy and deep abysses of despair to men and women since the beginning of time. Lawan apparently succumbing to the same malady that touched Mills. Bland moving in the foreground, impassive, stolidly secure in the possession of this desired woman and all of them bowed before and struggling under economic forces which they did not understand, working and planning, according to their lights, to fulfill the law of their being, seeking through the means at hand to secure the means of livelihood in obedience to the universal will to live, the human desire to lay firm hold of life, liberty, such happiness as could be grasped. Hollister would sit in the evening on the low stoop before his cabin, and Doris would sit beside him with her hand on his knee. A spirit of drowsy content would rest upon them. Hollister's eyes would see the river, gray now with the glacial discharge, slipping quietly along between the fringes of alder and maple, backed by the deeper green of the fir and cedar and groves of enormous spruce. His wife's ears drank in the whispering of the stream, the rumbling of distant waterfalls, and her warm body would press against him with an infinite suggestion of delight. At such times he felt the goodness of being alive, the mild intoxication of the fragrant air which filled the valley, the majestic beauty of those insentient hills upon which the fierce midsummer sun was bearing glacial patches that gleamed now like blue diamonds, or, again, with a pale emerald sheen, in a setting of worn granite and white snowdrifts five thousand feet above. In this wilderness, this vast region of forest and streams and wild mountain ranges, men were infinitesimal specks hurrying here and there about their self-appointed tasks. Those like himself and Doris, who did not mind the privations inseparable from that remoteness, fared well enough. The land held out to them manifold promises. 
Hollister looked at the red-brown shingle bolts accumulating behind the boomsticks and felt that inner satisfaction which comes of success achieved by plan and labor. If his mutilated face had been capable of expression, it would have reflected pride, satisfaction. Out of the apparent wreckage of his life, he was laying the foundations of something permanent, something abiding, an enduring source of good. He would tangle his fingers in Doris's brown hair and feel glad. Then perhaps his eyes would shift downstream to where Bland's stark, weather-beaten cabin lifted its outline against the green thickets, and he would think uneasily upon what insecure tenure, upon what deliberate violation of law and of current morality he held his dearest treasure. What would she think, if she knew, this dainty creature cuddling against his knee? He would wake in the night and lie on elbow, staring at her face in the moonlight, delicate-skinned as a child's, that lovable, red-lipped mouth, those dear, blind eyes which sometimes gave him the illusion of seeing clearly out of their gray depths. What would she think? What would she say? What would she do? He did not know. It troubled him to think of this. If he could have swept Myra out of North America with a wave of his hand, he would have made one sweeping gesture. He was jealous of his happiness, his security, and Myra's presence was not only a reminder, it had the effect upon him of a threat he could not ignore. Yet he was compelled to ignore it. She and Doris had become fast friends. It all puzzled Hollister very much sometimes. Except for the uprooting, the undermining influences of his war experience, he would have been revolted at his own actions. He had committed technical bigamy. His children would be illegitimate before the law. Hollister's morality was the morality of his early environment. His class was that magnificently inert middle class which sets its face rigorously against change which proceeds naively upon the assumption that everything has always been as it is and will continue to be so, that the man and woman who deviate from the accepted conventions in living, loving, marrying, breeding, even in dying, does so because of innate depravity, and that such people must be damned by bell, book, and candle in this world as they shall assuredly be damned in the next. Hollister could no longer believe that goodness and badness were wholly matters of free will. From the time he put on the king's uniform in a spirit of idealistic service down to the day he met Doris Cleveland on the steamer, his experience had been a succession of devastating incidents. What had happened to him had happened to others. Life laid violent hands on them and tossed them about like frail craft on a windy sea. The individual was caught in the vortex of the social whirlpool, and what he did, what he thought and felt, what he became, was colored and conditioned by a multitude of circumstances that flowed about him as irresistibly as an ocean tide. Hollister no longer had a philosophy of life in which motives and actions were tagged and labeled according to their kind, 
he had lost his old confidence in certain arbitrary moral dicta which are the special refuge of those whose intelligence is keen enough to grapple competently with any material problem, but who stand aghast, apprehensive, and uncomprehending before a spiritual struggle, before the wavering gusts of human passion. If he judged himself by his own earlier standard, he was damned, and he had dragged Doris Cleveland down with him. So was Myra smeared with the pitch of moral obloquy. They were sinners, all. Pain should be their desert, shame and sorrow their portion. Why? Because driven by the need within them, blinded by the dust of circumstance and groping for security amid the vast confusion which had overtaken them, they reached out and grasped such semblance of happiness as came within reach of their uncertain hands. The world at large, Hollister was aware, would be decisively intolerant of them all, if the world should by chance be called to pass judgment. But he himself could no more pass harsh judgment upon his former wife than he could feel within himself a personal conviction of sin. Love, he perceived, was not a fixed emotion. It was like a fire which glows bright when plied with fuel and burns itself out when it is no longer fed. To some it was casual, incidental, to others an imperative law of being. Myra remained essentially the same woman, whether she loved him or some other man. Who was he to judge her? She had loved him and then ceased to love him. Beyond that, her life was her own to do with as she chose. Nor could Hollister, when he faced the situation squarely, feel that he was less a man, less upright, less able to bear himself decently before his fellows than he had ever been. Sometimes he would grow impatient with thinking and put it all by. He had his moods. But also he had his work, the imperative necessity of constant labor to satisfy the needs both of the present and the future. No man goes into the wilderness with only his hands and a few tools and wins security by any short and easy road. There were a great many things Hollister was determined to have for himself and Doris and their children, for he did not close his eyes to the natural fulfillment of the mating impulse. He did not spare himself. Like Mills, he worked with a prodigious energy. Sometimes he wondered if dreams akin to his own drove Charlie Mills to sweat and strain, to pile up each day double the amount of split cedar, and double for himself the wages earned by the other two men, who were themselves no laggards with axe and saw or if Mills fantastically personified the timber as something which stood between him and his aching desire, and so attacked it with all his lusty young strength. Sometimes Hollister sat by, covertly watching Mills and Myra. He could make nothing of Myra. She was courteous, companionable, nothing more. But to Hollister, Mills's trouble was plain enough. The man was on his guard, as if he knew betrayal lurked in the glance of his eye, 
in the quality of his tone. Hollister gauged the depths of Mills's feelings by the smoldering fire in his glance. That glow in Mills's dark eyes when they rested too long on Myra. There would be open upon his face a look of hopelessness, as if he dwelt on something that fascinated and baffled him. Sometimes, latterly, he saw a hint of that same dubious expression about Archie Lawan. But there was a different temper in Lawan, a flash of the sardonic at times. In July, however, Lawan went away. "'I'm coming back, though,' he told Hollister before he left. "'I think I shall put up a cabin and winter here.' "'I'll be glad to see you,' Hollister replied. "'But it's a lonely valley in the winter.' Lawan smiled. "'I can stand isolation for a change,' he said. "'I want to write a book, and while I am outside, I'll send you in a couple that I have already written. You will see me in October. Try to get the shingle-bolt rush over so we can go out after deer together now and then.' So, for a time, the Toba saw no more of Lawan. Hollister missed him. So did Doris but she had Myra Bland to keep her company while Hollister was away at work in the timber. Sometimes Bland himself dropped in. But Hollister could never find himself on any common ground of mutual interest with this sporting Englishman. He was a bluff, hearty, healthy man, apparently without either intellect or affectation. "'What do you think of Bland?' he asked Doris once. "'I can't think of him, because I can't see him,' she answered. "'He is either very clever at concealing any sort of personality, "'or he is simply a big, strong, stupid man.' "'Which was precisely what Hollister himself thought. "'Isn't it queer,' Doris went on, "'how vivid a thing personality is? "'Now Myra and Mr. Lawan are definite.' colorable entities to me. So is Charlie Mills, quiet as he is. And yet I can't make Bland seem anything more than simply a voice with a slightly English accent. Well, there must be something to him, or she wouldn't have married him, Hollister remarked. Perhaps, but I shouldn't wonder if she married him for something that existed mostly in her own mind, Doris reflected. Women often do that. Men, too, I suppose. I very nearly did myself once. Then I discovered that this ideal man was something I had created in my own imagination. How did you find that out before you were committed to the enterprise? he asked, curiously. Because my reason and my emotions were in continual conflict over that man, Doris said thoughtfully. I have always been sure, ever since I began to take men seriously, that I wouldn't get on very long with any man who was simply a strong, healthy animal, and as soon as I saw that this admirable young man of mine hadn't much to offer that wasn't purely physical, why, the glamour all faded. Maybe mine will fade too, Hollister suggested. 
"'Oh, you're fishing for compliments now,' she laughed. "'You know very well you are. "'But we're pretty lucky, Robert mine, just the same. "'We've gained a lot. "'We haven't lost anything yet. "'I wouldn't backtrack, not an inch. "'Would you? Honest now?' Hollister answered that in a manner which seemed to him suitable to the occasion. And while he stood with his arm around her, Doris startled him. "'Myra told me a curious thing the other day,' she said. "'She has been married twice. She told me that her first husband's name was the same as yours, Bob Hollister, that he was killed in France in 1917. She says that you somehow remind her of him. There were a good many men killed in France in 17, he observed. And Hollister is not such an uncommon name. Does the lady suspect I'm the reincarnation of her dear departed? She seems to have consoled herself for the loss, anyway. I doubt if she has, Doris answered. She doesn't unburden her soul to me, but I have the feeling that she is not exactly a happy woman. The matter rested there. Doris went away to do something about the house. Hollister stood glowering at the distant outline of Bland's cabin. A slow uneasiness grew on him. What did Myra mean by that confidence? Did she mean anything? He shook himself impatiently. He had a profound distaste for that revelation. In itself it was nothing, unless some obscure motive lurked behind. That troubled him. Myra meant nothing, or she meant mischief. Why, he could not say. She was quit of him at her own desire. She had made a mouthful of his modest fortune. If she had somehow guessed the real man behind that mask of scars, and from some obscure, perverted motive meant to bring shipwreck to both of them once more, Hollister felt that he would strangle her without a trace of remorse. End of chapter 13 Recording by Roger Moline